All food was lawful for Bani Israel. Ta'am is ma yu'kal, that which is eaten. Okay, so everything that is eaten, as well as ma yushrab, everything that is drunk. Meaning anything that is edible, that you can consume, that you can eat, that you can drink, that's not poisonous. Okay, and obviously, what is allowed for us to eat? The food that is halal. What is allowed for us to drink? The drink that is halal. So, kullu ta'ami, all food and drink, meaning everything that people are allowed to eat, people are allowed to drink, by who? By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, all foods that are supposed to be eaten, whether it is plants or it is animals, all of them, Allah says, kana they were hillan, lawful. Hill from halal. They were all lawful for who? Libani Israel, for the children of Israel. Meaning at the beginning, think about the history of Bani Israel. Where did they come from? They were the progeny, the descendants of who? Yaqub alayhi salam. He was the grandson of who? Ibrahim alayhi salam. So right at the beginning, at the time of Ibrahim alayhi salam, after him, at the time of Yaqub alayhi salam, after him, when the Bani Israel, they were in Egypt, Yusuf alayhi salam was there, much after that as well, when Zakaria alayhi salam was there, Yahya alayhi salam, Sulaiman alayhi salam, Dawood alayhi salam before them. So, all foods, what were they? They were permissible. For who? For the Bani Israel, at the beginning. Illa except, the only exception was what? Ma that food which harama he made haram. Who? Israelu Israel. Who is Israel? Not Bani Israel, but Israel. Who is he? Yaqub alayhi salam. Remember in the explanation of the term Bani Israel, I told you that Israel was the title of Yaqub alayhi salam. It means slave of Allah. So, all foods were permissible except for that food which Israel, meaning Yaqub alayhi salam, made haram on who? Ala nafsihi, upon himself. Meaning, he made some food haram on himself. Why did he do that? Are we allowed to do that? Are people allowed to do that? The Prophet ﷺ was not allowed to make food haram on himself. When he said, I'm never going to have any again, Allah said, Lima tuharrimu ma? Why do you make forbidden what Allah has made permissible for you? So yes, this is an authority that people do not have. But Yaqub salam, it is said that out of another, a vow that he was fulfilling, because of that he made certain foods unlawful for himself. It is said that he was extremely sick, he had a particular disease, and he made a vow that, Oh Allah, if you cure me, I will not eat such and such food. Again, meaning, I love this food, I will give it up for your sake, if you cure me. Now we learned earlier, you can never attain piety unless and until you give away what you love. Sometimes that means giving up something that you love too. So Yaqub gave up some foods that he liked. For whose sake? For the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this was just a personal choice. He was not imposing it on others. This is just like you might say, I love tea. 
And once I start having tea, I want it in the morning, I want it in the afternoon, I want it at night. Every time I pass by Tim Hortons, I want a cup of tea. Every time I, I see Starbucks, I want a cup of tea or coffee or whatever. And I think it's getting out of hand. So then what do you say to yourself? I'm not going to have tea. I've made up my mind. I'm not having it again. Because if I have one cup, which leads me to another. So you say, that's it. I'm not having tea again. Now this is just a personal choice you're making. You're not imposing it on others. If you start imposing it on others, then it becomes a problem. Okay? For example, you say to other people, oh, by the way, you shouldn't have tea, you know. It's very unhealthy. You know, I don't even think it's tayyib. It's actually khabis. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that وَيُحَرِّمُ عَلَيْهِمُ الْخَبَائِسِ Allah has made khabais forbidden for people. So don't have tea. You know, just like some people, what they do is if they start eating healthy, then they think that every processed food is haram. Or they think that drinking milk, because some people say, oh, don't drink cow's milk. So they say drinking milk is not good. Eating meat is not good. You should be a vegetarian, you should be a vegan. And they start imposing their beliefs on others too. And they start looking down on others. This is where it becomes a problem. As a personal choice, if you stay away from something, that's okay. But again, you should not make it haram in the sense that if you are ever in a situation where you have to drink, somebody offers you a cup of tea and they made it themselves, at least have a sip or two. Come on. At least have a sip or two. They made it for you. They went to Tim Hortons and brought you a cup. Have a sip. Give it away to somebody else after that, but have a sip at least. So don't make it haram, literally. But Yaqub he decided not to have certain foods. Okay? So at the beginning, what do we learn? All foods were permissible for Bani Israel. There were just a few things that Yaqub stayed away from. Alright? And all of this was min qabli before antunazzal al-Tawrah, before the Torah was revealed. When was the Torah revealed? On who? On which Prophet? Musa alayhi salam. And when was it revealed? When? Many, many years after Yaqub alayhi salam. We're talking about the Bani Israel being in Egypt for many, many generations until Fir'aun enslaved them. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Musa alayhi salam to free the Bani Israel. The Bani Israel left Egypt, and when they were in the desert, that's where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Torah. So that's when the law came, in other words. And when the law came, then the Bani Israel were told, this is permissible for you, and this is not permissible for you. Alright? So, over here, what do we see? That... The Bani Israel were given the laws of haram and halal, how? Gradually. This is just like the ummah of Muhammad wasallam. also, they were given the laws of halal and haram, how? Gradually. In Makkah, people were Muslim, yet they were drinking alcohol. You know, in Medina, the companions would get together in the houses of one of them, and they would have alcohol parties. Literally. This was something that was allowed for them. And then, the consumption of alcohol haram, they were revealed. And one of the companions, he went to those companions who were actually drinking alcohol and he told them, if somebody had alcohol in his mouth, he spat it out. If somebody had the cup to his mouth, he didn't drink it. This was their reaction. So anyway, 
The point over here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that the law was given to the Bani Israel gradually as well. Just as it was given to the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. قُلْ سَيْ فَأْتُوا بِالتَّوْرَةِ Allah says, say to the Bani Israel that bring the Torah, tell the Ahlul Kitab, bring the book, فَتْلُوهَا and then read it. Meaning recite it yourselves. Find out yourselves. Isn't this mentioned in the Torah that everything was permissible at the beginning and then later on when the Torah was revealed, then the law was given. I mean, it's a fact. Read it yourself and then you will see that the laws of halal and haram are mentioned in the Torah. And those laws were not given before. The Bani Israel, before the Torah came, what did they do? In kuntum sadiqeen, if you are truthful in your claim. Now, this ayah was revealed in response to an objection that the Bani Israel made, that the Ahlul Kitab made. They said to the Prophet ﷺ that you say you are on the same religion as that of Ibrahim ﷺ. That you say that Allah, the one who sent revelation to Yaqub ﷺ, to Musa ﷺ, He is the one who has sent revelation to you. So if that is the case, that means our religion is supposed to be the same because the source is the same. So if our religion is supposed to be the same, then why is it that you have different dietary laws? Why is it that some things that we consider haram, you consider halal? And some things which we consider halal, you say they are haram. Is that so? Is there any difference between the Jewish dietary laws and Muslim dietary laws? Is there any difference? Many differences. Can you think of some? What are some of the differences? The Jews, they have wine, alcohol, but Muslims don't. It's haram for us. Camel meat is something that they stay away from. Fat of animals, they cannot consume that. Okay, on particular parts of the body of the animals. So they have stricter kosher laws. Alright, and you know about having different foods together at the same place, something to do with dairy and meat. I don't know the details, but... So they have certain things haram which are... Halal for us. And we have certain things haram which are halal for them. So these differences are there. So they came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, you say that this religion of yours is a continuation of ours, it's the same. But how come the dietary laws are different? So they came up with this objection. And they said that it's not possible that Allah would tell us something is halal and He would make it haram on you. Or He would make something haram on us and then later He would make halal on you. Because if Allah made something halal at the beginning and later made it haram, if He changed the law, meaning if He abrogated the law, then what you're implying is that Allah is just playing with us. That sometimes He makes something unlawful, other times He makes it lawful. Do you see what I mean? Do you see their objection? That you're saying Allah is just playing with us. This religion is just a game. And Allah is above that. Likewise I said, if you're saying that Allah has changed the law over time, then you're implying that Allah did not know of some benefit, some reason before, and then He came to know later. So He changed His mind, na'udhu billah. That He didn't know before, He found out later. And Allah is above that because He has all knowledge. So in other words, they were saying that there is no naskh, there is no abrogation. That this is the main point. 
Okay, they said there is no abrogation within the Sharia and also of one Sharia abrogating another. So this was their claim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this ayah saying, challenging them to bring the Torah and find out for themselves that were the laws not abrogated before? Yes, of course. And we see this, that at the time of Adam salam, some things were permissible which were made forbidden later on. I mean, if you think about it, Hawa was in a way, she was created from the body of Adam salam. You could say that she was his daughter. You could say that. Alright? Likewise, Adam salam, Hawa, their children, they would actually marry one another. And this is something that is not allowed today at all. Correct? So why is it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changed the law? Something that was allowed before became impermissible later or vice versa. Why? Why do you think so? Because the situation is different. At that time, the children of Adam salam, if they did not marry one another, then human race would finish completely. And today, if siblings started marrying one another, that would lead to Many other problems and vices. Alright? So the situation is different. This is why the laws were different. At the time of Ibrahim, the situation that the people were in was different. At the time of Yaqub, the situation was different. Later on, it changed. And this does not mean that Allah did not know. No, He knew. But He is Ar-Rahim and He is Al-Hakim. He only commands that which people can do, which is possible for people. For example, at the beginning, when the Prophet ﷺ came, alcohol was not made forbidden. Why? Because if it was made forbidden right from the beginning, it would be very, very difficult for people to accept Islam or to even practice Islam. So what happened? When they were strong in their faith, in their yaqeen, then later on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made alcohol haram. So the inner strength of the sahaba was so much that as soon as they found out, they just spat out the alcohol which was even in their mouths. So they were ready to take that. They were willing to accept that law. So, over here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to the objection of the Bani Israel that no, Naskh happened before too. Naskh happened before too. The laws have changed. As the prophets came, they brought the same message, but the laws were slightly different. Alright? The laws were slightly different. They all brought the same message. But the laws were different. Likewise, if Muhammad ﷺ has come, he has brought the same message. But the laws will be different because the people are in a different situation now. Alright? Now you might say, well, 1400 years have passed by since the Prophet ﷺ came. Things have changed a lot. So shouldn't the law be revised? No, it cannot be revised. Because who only has the authority to revise the law? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the reason why it will not be changed is because Allah knew that these changes will occur. But still, the law of Islam is applicable. It is still applicable. It is still possible to live according to Islam. To live according to the laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given. And if you think about it, after the Prophet ﷺ, after his time, it is when 
the course of human history changed completely. Before that, if you think about it in history, people were just on the religion of their kings. Before that, you see a lot of polytheism. But later on, after that, the people have changed. They were more into science, into discovery, into medicine, so on and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew that these changes were going to occur. Likewise, we see that before, people were all scattered over the earth. Hardly any communication. But after the time of the Prophet wasallam, it's as though the world has become global village, right? So, the major changes that occurred were always before. And after the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there haven't been much major changes. This is the reason why the law is the same. It is still applicable. So Allah says, "In kuntum sadiqin, if you're truthful, bring the Torah and read for yourselves. Find out for yourself." فَمَنِفْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبَ Then whoever fabricates a lie against Allah, iftira from the root letters faraya, it is to invent something and it is to invent a statement or a claim and ascribe it to another person. So basically to say that so-and-so said something, whereas he never said it. So whoever invents against Allah a lie, meaning he says that Allah made something halal, whereas he did not, or Allah made something haram, which he did not, مِن بَعْدِ ذَلِكَ After that, meaning after the proof has become manifest, then فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ Then those people are the wrongdoers. Now what do we learn in these ayat? We learn that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can declare whatever He wants to be lawful and whatever He wants to be unlawful. The authority is with Him. Then we also learn in this verse about the fact that those who claim that there is no abrogation, their claim is false. There is abrogation in the deen and there is wisdom behind it. There is benefit behind it. Then we also learn in these verses that whenever people object they criticize. Then how should you respond? With evidence. With evidence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, tell them, bring the Torah and read for yourself. So if people have a question, they have an objection, don't just go on giving your own opinion, your own explanation. Talk with evidence. Give proof. Because what is more acceptable to people? What you're saying or a fact and evidence Obviously in evidence. That is more convincing. Likewise, we also learn from this ayat that when the truth becomes clear to a person, then what should he do? He should accept and not remain stubborn on his falsehood going on and fabricating lies about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. قُلْ صَدَقَ اللَّهِ Say that Allah has spoken the truth. Concerning what? Concerning which matter? Concerning the matter of naskh, abrogation in the shara'ir. The laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, they abrogated one another. But not just in this matter. Say that Allah has spoken the truth with regards to every single matter. Meaning everything that Allah has informed us of, that Allah has revealed in His book, what is it? It is the truth. It is a fact. You know, when you're trying to research something, you look at different things. What so-and-so has said, what is written in such and such book, what is reported in such and such website, whatever. You look at different resources. And some resources are reliable and others are not. And even those resources that are supposed to be reliable, sometimes you have doubts about them. 
But what if it's not true? That feeling of mistrust. You know, you don't know who to trust and who not to trust. Because even the most knowledgeable, the most sound people can make mistakes, can be in error. But what do we learn here? That we can accept with closed eyes anything and everything that Allah tells us of. There is absolutely no doubt about it. You know, right at the beginning of the Qur'an, what do we learn? ذَلِكَ الْكِتَابِ لَا رَيْبَ فِي There is no doubt in it. It's factual. So Allah says, قُلْ صَدَقَ اللَّهِ Say that Allah has spoken the truth. And notice over here, the Prophet ﷺ is being told to declare this. Meaning to affirm the truthfulness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If He is commanded to affirm the truthfulness of Allah, then what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to do the same. That Allah has spoken the truth. Let me tell you an incident. In the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about honey. That fihi shifa. In it is a cure for people. Okay? Once a man came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said that my brother is extremely ill. What should I do? The Prophet ﷺ said, give him honey. Allah says, fihi shifa, give him honey. So that man went and gave honey to his brother. And his brother got more sick. So he came back to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, my brother is more sick. The Prophet ﷺ said, Allah has spoken the truth and the stomach of your brother is lying. Go give him honey again. So he gave him honey again and then he was fine. Because sometimes it happens that when you're sick and you're getting treatment, then you get worse and then eventually you get better. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah has spoken the truth. If Allah has said that honey has cure, then it does have cure. Honey cannot make your situation worse. It cannot make you more sick. Because Allah has said that in it is cure. Now a person might say, but you know, some people may develop allergies and so on and so forth. So for them, honey is not suitable. Why? Because these days, honey is not pure honey. Okay? The honey that you buy from the grocery stores is not always pure. Likewise, the environment has changed. This is why you have to be more cautious. But honey that is pure, then use it. Okay? So Allah says, قُلْ صَدَقَ اللَّهِ Say that Allah has spoken the truth. So anything that Allah has informed us of in His book, whether it is a matter of history, or something about the state of people, something about the future, something about the hereafter, something about the reality of the hearts of people, whatever that Allah has informed us of, what is it? It is the truth. So have no doubt. How is it the truth? Because Allah has said it. And Allah says, وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُ مِنَ اللَّهِ حَدِيثًا Who can be more truthful than Allah in speech? Meaning no one else can be more truthful than Allah in speech. Because one can speak the truth when he knows reality. And Allah, He is the one who knows the unseen of the heavens and the earth. So قُلْ صَدَقَ اللَّهِ Say that Allah has spoken the truth. فَاتَّبِعُوا مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ حَنِيفًا Therefore follow the religion of Ibrahim السلام, who was Hanif. وَمَا كَانَ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ And he was not of those who associate partners with Allah. Allah tells us, follow. All of you follow. Notice, فَاتَّبِعُوا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the command to the Prophet ﷺ as well. In Surah Al-Nahl, Ayah 123, 
Allah says, ثُمَّ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ أَنِ اتَّبِعْ مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمِ We have revealed to you that you should follow the way of Ibrahim. And over here, Allah tells all the believers, اتَّبِعُوا All of you follow. So the Prophet ﷺ was told to follow Ibrahim ﷺ and we believers are also told to follow the millah of Ibrahim ﷺ. The question is, what is millah? Millah is the sharia that a messenger teaches to the people. The way of a messenger, of a prophet that he has taught to the people. And obviously he got that way, that knowledge from who? Who is the source? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the way of Ibrahim, what does it mean by this? Follow the way of Ibrahim salam, meaning do what he did. Do what he did. Believe what he believed in. Practice what he practiced. فَاتَّبِعُوا مِلَّةَ Ibrahim. And what was the way of Ibrahim salam? If you summarize it, if you sum it up, Allah tells us it is Hanif of being Hanif, and what is Hanif? Unswerving, meaning ma'il an kulli shik, being away from every kind of shik. Wa ma kana min al mushrikin. He was not of those who do shik. Now, why does Allah subhanahu wa taala tell us to follow the way of Ibrahim alayhisalam? Because, like I mentioned earlier, the Jews they said we are on the religion of Ibrahim, and whatever he ate, we eat. Whatever he did not eat, we don't eat that either. So we are on his religion. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refuted that claim that no, you are following the Torah which was revealed much after Ibrahim alayhi salam. But you have to follow Ibrahim alayhi salam in what? In creed, in faith. When it comes to dietary laws, when it comes to other practices, you have to do what has been revealed in the scripture. What has been brought to you by the messenger who is before you. So when we are told to follow Ibrahim salam, it doesn't mean that we are to follow the same sharia, the same law. What it means is that we are to follow in beliefs. And what was that belief? Of Tawheed. Now, remember that the previous messengers, whatever laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them, okay, and the law that Allah has given to us, it can be divided into three types. Okay, when compared, the laws that were revealed before and the law that has been given to us, it can be divided into three categories. First of all, those laws that Allah has given to us which contradict the previous shara'ir. Meaning they're different. So, for example, some things were made unlawful for Bani Israel. Tayyibat, some good things were made unlawful for them. But are they lawful for us? Yes. For example, camel meat, they would stay away from. Fat, they would stay away from. Alright? But we are allowed to use it. So in this situation, what are we to do? When there is a contradiction, then what are we to do? We are to follow the law that Allah has given to us. The second category is of those laws which don't contradict. That are according to our sharia. For example... In a hadith, we learned that there are ten acts of fitrah, which include what? Trimming the nails, okay? For men, trimming the mustache, removing pubic hair, keeping yourself physically clean, alright? And some other, including circumcision for men. So these are ten acts of fitrah. 
Alright? And that Ibrahim also did them. Ibrahim also did them. We do them, and he did them too. So these laws, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to follow them. The third category is of those laws which are not mentioned in our Sharia. Okay? They're not given in our Sharia, but they're mentioned in the previous. Meaning our Sharia is silent concerning it. It doesn't contradict and it doesn't confirm. Doesn't contradict and it does not confirm. Meaning our Sharia is silent about it. So for example, in the Qur'an, we learn about the stories of the people of the past. For example, Maryam salam, that how she kept a fast of being silent. Meaning that she was told, do not speak to anyone. This is just for one day. Alright? And there are other things as well that Dawood did, Sulaiman did, the previous prophets did. They're not mentioned in our Sharia. Our Sharia is silent about it. Many things we find out that happened previously, but there's no mention of it in our law. So in this case, what are we to do? Some scholars said that we don't do it. We don't do it. Because if it was allowed for us, then Allah would have told us. And when Allah is silent concerning, that means we don't do it. But other scholars said that no, we do it. Why? Because Allah says in the Quran that أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ هَدَ اللَّهِ Follow them. So we will follow the previous shara'ir, but only those matters in which there is contradiction, that our sharia contradicts the previous law, there we will not follow. Alright? So if there were certain foods that were halal, okay, but Allah has made haram now, we will not eat them. If there were certain foods that were haram, now they are halal, we will eat them. Alright? Let's listen to the recitation. قُلْ فَأْتُوا بِالتَّوْرَاتِ فَاتْلُوهَا إِن كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ فَمَنِ افْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبَ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ قُلْ صَدَقَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُوا مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ حَنِيفًا وَمَا كَانَ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ Now we see that the Bani Israel, the Ahlul Kitab, they would always look down on who? On the Prophet ﷺ, on the Arabs, saying that you are the unlettered ones, no scripture has been sent to you. They would not ascribe any importance to them. And why was it? Because they believed they were the chosen people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent prophets to them, sent scriptures to them. And over here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that no, guidance did not start from you. They thought the whole process of revelation, guidance, everything started from them. They were the first ones. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala negates this concept, negates this belief of theirs and says, Indeed the first house that wudi'a lin-nas, that was placed for the people, that was made for the people, 
was which one? لَلَّذِي بِبَكَّةِ is surely the one that is at Bakkah. Meaning the first building that was ever constructed for all people to come and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over there was which building? The one in Jerusalem? No. It is the building, the structure that stands in Bakkah. Bakkah meaning Makkah. So which structure is it? The Kaaba. So don't think that it all started from you and you are the most important ones. No. The awwala baytin. Bayt, bayata is house. And the house over here refers to house of Allah. And house of Allah doesn't mean that Allah lives there, na'udhu billah. It's called house of Allah because it is given importance. That building is given a lot of importance by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because that is the place where people come and worship Him. So in other words, the first mosque, the first structure where people got together to worship Allah was which one? At Bakka. The word wudi'ah is from the root letters wawdada'in and wada'ah is to put down, to place something. And notice the word linnas. Anas means who? All people, all mankind, not just the Arabs, not just the descendants of Ismail salam, but even the descendants of Israel. Even they used to come to worship Allah. Where? At this house. And this is a fact. They used to come to worship Allah at this house. And later on, when the Baytul Maqdis was constructed, at the time of Sulaiman salam, and because of the persecution that the Yahud faced, the difficulties that the Ahlul Kitab faced, and they lost their original deen, they lost the book, everything, that is when they lost this practice as well. Of going to Makkah to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over there. Because many changes were made to their deen. So this is one of the things that they stopped doing. So it was made for who? All people. Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, he asked the Prophet sallallahu O Allah's Messenger, which masjid was the first to be built on the surface of the earth? And he replied, Al-Masjid Al-Haram. It is said that the first ones to construct this masjid was who? The angels. Allah ordered the angels to construct this masjid, meaning the Kaaba. And then it is said that Adam salam reconstructed it. And then it is said after the time of Nuh salam, the flood, after that it was reconstructed again. And then again we learned that Ibrahim salam, Ismail salam, we learned earlier, وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ Remember that ayah? That Ibrahim salam, was lifting up, meaning he was raising walls on the foundations that were already present. So the structure was there. Over time, it went into ruins, but the foundations were there. And Ibrahim salam, reconstructed the Kaaba on the same foundation. So the first house that was ever constructed for the people to come and worship Allah is the one at Bakkah, meaning the house in Makkah, as in the Kaaba. Bakkah is one of the names of the city of Makkah. It is one of the ancient names of the city of Makkah. And Bakkah, some people say that it is actually Makkah, the Makhraj, the place from where the letter Meem comes. That is the same as the makhraj of the letter ba. Meme and ba. They come from the same place. And in some dialects, they interchange meme and ba in Arabic. Alright? So they say makkah, bakkah, same thing. 
Alright, Makkah and Bakkah, same thing. This is just like in the English language also. In different accents, people pronounce certain letters differently. I mean, people who are Scottish or Irish, sometimes it's difficult to understand their accent even because they're saying the same words, but they pronounce them so differently. Right? So, Bakkah, Makkah, same thing. Others say that no, there is a difference in the meaning. And they say that Bakkah is from the root letters Bakkah, Kaf. And it means to rip, to break, to destroy something. Okay, to rip, to break, to destroy something. And the city of Makkah is such that if you want to go there, then literally you get ripped up, you get torn, you get physically exhausted. And obviously these days it's much different. But before when people had to travel through the desert, have you ever traveled from Makkah to Medina? Have you? in a nice air-conditioned bus or in a car, you were sipping on cold soda or what. Imagine if you were not in that car and you were walking on that sand. Just imagine how difficult that journey would be. Sand, rock, heat. And when people would travel to get to Makkah, they would be literally destroyed, ripped up, ripped apart their shoes ripped up, their clothes in tatters. I mean, it was such a difficult journey because it's in the middle of the desert. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have made Makkah elsewhere too. But He decided this place because only the very sincere ones will decide to come there. You know, a place that is very beautiful, a place that is very comfortable, anybody can go there. But a place where it's difficult to survive where it's difficult to spend every minute, only those who are sincere will go there. Only those who deeply yearn will go there. Likewise, it is said that it's called Bakka because it crushes the tyrants, meaning people who are arrogant elsewhere, people who are very you know, oppressive, maybe when they come there, even they are broken up. And you see this at Hajj. You know, tall, huge men that may be very well off back home. And what do they have on them? Just two plain white sheets. And what are they wearing on their feet? Rubber slippers. No socks. No fragrance. Nothing fancy. Right? And people get humbled over there. People feel that humility over there. So people who are arrogant and proud and very powerful elsewhere in Makkah, they become like this. So this is why Bakka is called Bakka. And this city, Bakka, this name, is actually also mentioned in the Bible. In Psalm 84, verse 5 to 7, it is said, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Bakka, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rain also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appears before God. So in these verses also, the reference is to pilgrimage that people would undertake to the city of Bakka. And if you think about it, Hajj is not just around the Kaaba, but also outside, right? You have to go to Muzdalifa, to Mina, right? To Arafah. So they pass by the valley of Bakka. And the spring, the water, what is that referring to? Zamzam. Alright? So this is also mentioned in the Bible. Allah says that the first house to be built for worship of Allah so that people come and worship there is the one at Bakka. 
And Allah says it's Mubarakan. It's blessed. Mubarak from Barakaf, Baraka. And what does Baraka mean? Hmm? Something that grows, becomes abundant. In its benefit, it is great. Sometimes it increases in its quantity as well. So for example, you have one bottle of water. Okay? And you say there's a lot of barakah in this bottle because alhamdulillah you were sipping from it the whole day, but by the end of the day you still had that bottle. And it's not like you're feeling thirsty. No, your thirst was quenched. You were sipping throughout the day and still you have that bottle. You have some water left. So what do you say? There's so much barakah in this. Alright? Or for example, you have some money. You say there's so much barakah in this because you were able to do so much with it. Alright? So, Mubarak is that which is full of blessings. The city of Makkah, Allah says, it is Mubarak. Barakah has been placed there. What benefits does a person find in the city of Makkah? What khayr does a person find from the city of Makkah? When he goes there, he sees that yes, there is a lot of good here. He experiences that goodness. Anyone has gone for Hajj, for Umrah? So tell me, what Barakah is in the city of Makkah? First of all, there is a lot of Barakah in people. Okay? When you see thousands and thousands of people, crowds and crowds just going in, 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 into the Haram, you would think that there would be no space left. But even when the doors are closed, and if a person manages to get in somehow, he will find a spot to pray. Right? So anyway, the barakat that a person experiences in Makkah, to summarize, there are many spiritual and material benefits in Makkah. For instance, when a person goes for hajj, and if he performs hajj, staying away from sin, okay, no rafath, no fusuq, no jidal in hajj, then he goes back home as clean as the day that his mother gave birth to him. Meaning he goes back home absolutely free of sin. Free of sin. If his hajj is accepted, it's as though he was just born. So he can start all over again. All his previous sins, forgiven. Now this is barakah. This is a huge benefit. A huge blessing. That all of the sins of a person are forgiven. Another benefit, another khair is that when a person worships Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over there, then the reward for that is multiplied. You could pray salah at your home and you could pray salah by the Kaaba. Which one is more rewarding? The one by the Kaaba. There's barakah and reward. Likewise, if a person gives sadaqah over there, it's much better. If a person fasts over there, much better. This is the reason why people strive to go to Makkah in the month of Ramadan. Another benefit, another khayr, is that we see that rizq, provision, is brought there from every corner of the world. Every corner of the world, you see rizq being brought to Makkah, while the fact is that nothing grows there. Nothing grows there, yet it's full of food. It's full of anything that you want, that you need. You will find it in Makkah. I know of people who actually go to Makkah so that they can spend some time, you know, do Umrah, worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they can also do some of their shopping. Because they say the best stores are there. Many stores are there. And it's true. 
I mean, it's sad. You don't like the idea of going all the way there. You have only a few days, a few weeks, and you'd spend that in the mall as opposed to the haram. It's sad, but people do that. And in fact, there's no sin in it as long as a person is spending most of his time worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, benefiting from the place that he's at. Because Allah says that, وَتَزَوَّدُوا right? Take Zad with you. And there's no harm in earning dunya over there too, as long as a person's main focus is ibadah. Likewise, we see that it is Mubarak how that in it is a source of water, a spring, from which thousands and thousands of people drink daily. Some bathe in it, and some put it in huge water cans and take them across to another corner of the world. Have you ever seen a Hajj flight coming in? And you see all those water cans, zamzam that people are bringing in. You know a friend of mine, she lives in Tabuk, okay, in Saudi Arabia. And what they do is that every other week or whatever, they try to go to Makkah to do Umrah. They go to do Umrah, they take with them huge water cans and they go fill them up and they bring back that water and they actually drink that water and cook with that water, zamzam. Other water that's there, you know, they'll use in the washroom, whatever. But in the kitchen, which water is used? Zamzam. I was like, subhanallah. And it's been there for thousands and thousands of years, yet it hasn't finished. This is barakah. This is barakah. It's mubarak. How? That prayers are answered over there. People have so many du'as. And they go, they do umrah, they do hajj, and they make dua, and they see that their duas have actually been accepted. What they asked Allah for in that place, Allah responded to them. So it's mubarak in that way too. A person can earn benefits of dunya, akhirah, regardless of what time of year it is. It's mubarak, it's blessed because the Prophet ﷺ was raised over there. So mubarakan, that city is mubarak. And not just Mubarak, but it's also Wahudan and a guidance for who? Lil Alameen, for the people of the worlds. Meaning, it is a pillar by which people are guided. It is a source by which people are guided. How is it that people are guided through Makkah? How? That people go there to do Hajj. People go there to do Umrah. People go there to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They pray, they worship, they supplicate. And then what happens? The rest of their lives are changed. Have you ever heard of someone who went for Hajj and then they changed? They went for Umrah and then they changed? Yes, it happens with many people. Many times it happens that people go there and then, for example, a friend of mine once she told me that she started wearing hijab and when she went for Hajj or Umrah, she said that she felt very uncomfortable because there were so many men everywhere that she would feel awkward and she would you know, cover her face a little. And she said, as I got to the airport, you know, I decided I don't have to cover my face anymore. So she took her naqaba. And she said, but I used to cover my face around the Kaaba, so why not here? And why not elsewhere? And that moment she decided, I'm going to cover my face too. So it happens with many people. Some people go for hajj. They don't have a beard, men, right? And for the days of hajj, they're not allowed to shave. And then after that, they say, okay, this much hair has come. I might as well keep a beard. So it happens with many people. People go there, they feel that they're hearing the Qur'an in Taraweeh, the Imam is reciting the Qur'an, everywhere you hear the Qur'an. But I don't know what this means. 
and they make a promise, I'm going to go back and I'm going to study the meaning of the Qur'an. So there are many examples of how when people go to that place, they increase in their guidance on their return from there. Imam Bukhari, he went for Hajj and he decided to stay in Mecca to study the deen. He was 16 years old at that time. He decided to study. He learned more and more ahadith. His brother went back home, but he stayed there. There are many people who went for hajj, who went for umrah, sat in the company of the scholars, and that is what changed them for the rest of their lives. So who then? It's a source of guidance. Lil'alameen. For the people of the world. Meaning all people, all mankind benefit from this place. It becomes a turning point in their lives. It becomes a new beginning. It's a place from where hidayah emanates. People go there for hajj, umrah, and they increase in their righteousness. They develop such good habits. You know, for example, a person goes for umrah, and the whole time that he's there, he's worshipping Allah. The time between the prayers, he's sitting, making du'as, reading Qur'an, and when he comes back, he tries to keep that routine. So, وَهُدَنْ لِلْعَالَمِينَ 